artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, biotechnology. They are powerful and cataclysmic. I think the emergence of artificial intelligence will redefine our lives forever. With this technology, our future hangs in the balance. Emergent technologies are the future of humanity. This is the Future Discussions Podcast. On this show, we talk about almost any issue that affects our future as humans. Look at this through the lens of emerging, converging and destructive technologies, paying close attention to how we can leverage on these technologies to create the kind of future we want. I am Augustus Chuku. Join me as I take you on this amazing journey of discovering our future and the powers locked within our emerging technologies. The world we live in today is being upended in many ways by the emerging, converging and destructive technologies that are now with us. Now, in almost every sector or every domain of human activity and every aspect of our experience. So I have described the effects of these technologies as cataclysmic, but others see it as revolutionary. However, as we reflect on this, so there are some important questions that come to the fore. What are the most significant thing or the significant things about these emerging technologies? And what is the nature of our world today and how could our technology potentially impact on it? What emerging technology will have the greatest impact on that business that you own or that you manage? More importantly, on you as an individual human species. So today, we discuss ideas about the future of everything with the renowned futurist Thomas Fryer. So we talked about things like the most significant technology in our world today as we go into the future. We also discussed ideas about innovation, the drivers of innovation and how it can be potentially applied in creating the kind of world we want. We also talked about the future of AI, robotics and work. We also talked about the future of Africa in an emerging world of technology, amongst many other things. So, welcome to the show, let's dive right in. Thomas Fry is an executive director and senior futurist at the Da Vinci Institute, and currently Google's top-rated futurist speaker. He works closely with his board of visionaries to develop original research studies which enables him to speak on unusual topics, translating trends into unique opportunities. As part of his celebrity speaking circuit, Tom continually pushes the envelope of understanding, creating fascinating images of the world to come. His keynote talks on futurist topics have captivated people, ranging from high-level government officials to executives in Fortune 100 companies, including NASA, IBM, AT&T, HP, you know, Capital One, Visa, Ford Motor Company, a whole lot of other companies that I cannot mention here. There are very much many here. Because of his work inspiring inventors, 
and other revolutionary thinkers, the Bowdoin Daily Camera has referred to him as the father of invention. The Denver Post and Seattle Post Intelligence have referred to him as the dean of futurists. Before launching the Da Vinci Institute, Tom spent 15 years at IBM as an engineer and designer, where he received over 270 awards, more than any other IBM engineer. He is also a past member of the 999 Society, a high IQ society over 99.9 percent high. It's a very brilliant and a smart guy. So, Tom, very pleased to have you on the show today. Welcome to the Future Discussion Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, as a way of beginning, I'd like to ask you, um, how do you basically see the world we live in today? Um, the world is changing in lots of interesting directions. Um, we just did an event last night on the, uh, on the techno apocalypse and whether things can go really off off the rails and uh, things can all go bad. And uh, see, we're very dependent on technology uh, today, and in the future, we're going to be more dependent on technology. And when we're when we become so dependent on technology, that means that we have more breaking points, more things that can go wrong. And, um, and if, if somebody, a devious person, decides they want to take down, oh, the internet or a specific company, um, there, there might be a greater likelihood uh, based on our dependence on technology. So that's, there's, there's some danger, danger zones there that we have to, steer clear of. But there's so many positive things happening in the world. One of the things I talk about a lot is that uh, all the emerging technology gives us the tools of creation. It gives us the tools to produce far more things than ever before. Um, so I, I've been predicting that over the next coming two decades that we're going to see over 100,000 new micro-industries uh, spring to life. Um, now, every industry is a bell curve. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And a thousand years from now, all the industries we have today will have gone away and been replaced many times. And so when we look at our industries that we're, we have in the world today, the most profitable ones end up being in the second half of the bell curve. And so we're at a point where we're going to start seeing lots of new industries come to life, and every industry starts as just one or two businesses springing to life, so it all starts as a micro-industry, and uh, that gives us the opportunity to, to look at um, the potential for lots of new things coming out of the woodwork, and uh, a lot of our existing big businesses are going to start falling by the wayside. Very interesting there. So I'd like to quickly go to the, ne go to the next question. So. Uh, what most significant thing about our technology today should we take note you know, going into the future? Yeah, some of the most significant things today is that we're, everything is connected. Uh, we're connected. Um, we're connecting devices uh, to devices. We're connecting people to devices. Um, all of um, In the future, all of the devices that we have connected will uh, they will understand our voice, 
uh, we can talk back and forth to them. Um, all the, the, the teddy bears, the, the garage door openers, the, the timers we have in the kitchen, we'll be talking back and forth to. And, um, and, and so that gives us lots of interesting new options to play around with. Now it'll take, uh, even though these devices are available today, um, it'll take a while for people to start trusting them, to, um, for them to be easy enough, to have a, a simple enough user interface for the average person to just buy it and, and make it part of their life. Um, right now it's still clunky and there's still too many, you have to click the right button in the right place, otherwise nothing works. Uh, we have a lot of that, that type of problem out there. But um, so this connectedness is one of the big things. Now, as we move into a 5G era, that's the fifth generation of telecom, it's, um, it's primarily about the speed, but that speed affects so many other things at the same time. Uh, the technology will, will be, we can reach farther with all this technology than ever before. And we end up putting additional computing power at the edges of all of our systems. And so that gives us uh, more capabilities than ever before. Um, so this, I think, is, is quite fascinating um, in that um, little by little, all of these things, they seem like gradual changes. But um, I have to remind people that the, the cars that we drive today have actually been in development for over 120 years. And so it's taken 120 years to get to cars that are this good. So with all this new technology, we have to work our way through the crappy stages before we get to the good stuff. And we have, we have a lot of crappy technology out there right now. And so we have to uh, make all these little improvements to get to the stages where it's really useful and really good. Very interesting. Just to follow up on uh, what you talked about, the connectedness uh, of our technology, uh, as we go into the future, uh, talking about the connectedness of our systems, these technological systems, uh, do you think that this will make us more vulnerable or will render us even more protected, or make us even more protected? Because when you talk about connectedness, we basically, this idea, we can uh, we can take a clue from the internet of things, when we have our devices connected to each other and uh, giving real-time data of our world, of our bodies, and a whole lot of other things. You know, so, so will this make us even more protected? Or will, will it render us even more vulnerable in the face of these technologies? Yeah, there's, there's the plus side in the... Uh, the negative side of all the the connectedness. So uh, the the good side of all the connectedness is it gives us all these additional capabilities. We can we can accomplish so much more in our lifetime because uh, these tools um, just enable us to do far more in an average day than than ever before in all history. So if we're leveraging these tools, it gives us lots of capabilities. Now this connectedness also has the danger of um, being very intrusive. Um, and so since we're, we're getting very connected, we need to somehow understand the limits of privacy. And, and that's, that's not well understood. Um, see, there's a lot of people who are 
radical transparency advocates, and they think that if we know everything about everybody, that we'll live in a much safer world. But see, if I know everything about you, then I know what your bank account numbers are, your credit card numbers, your passwords, and then suddenly we lose our ability to own things. And that ownership ability is so foundational to the way the world works that, um, that we run into lots of dangers there. And uh, so the ownership part of it is, is, is key to it, but we, we have to have some sort of a privacy bubble around every person on the planet and that hasn't been defined legally. It hasn't been defined technologically or culturally even. And, um, and so if we, um, if we have a different privacy policy for every country in the world, then that makes it very confusing and we essentially don't have any privacy in the world. So we need some sort of standards, privacy standards for the entire world. And, and we have a long ways to go on that. So all this connectedness, there's the plus side and the, the downside of all of it. Um, I happen to be optimistic. I think that there's, there's lots of positive um, things to it that um, being able to have your refrigerator order the food that you need for dinner tonight, um, I think that's, that's kind of cool. Um, I'm not sure too many people use it, though. So I wanted to ask you about the uh, about privacy at the tail end of this discussion. But since you brought it up, I think let's stay a little bit more on that. Um, so about a question of privacy, Kevin Kelly talked about the relationship between privacy and the internet, and he's according to him, the nature of its uh, the nature of the internet itself, it's something that has to do with. At the core of its uh, nature, it's its shareability, its ability to duplicate, to, you know, to copy and paste. That's the nature of the internet, that you have a system where people are able to share information. And so in its very nature, it is not uh, akin to hiddenness. It is not uh, uh, adaptable. It's not uh, adaptable to hiddenness. So how do you see the, the, the question of privacy, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, the very nature of the internet because when you talk about the internet its nature is one that is not adaptable to uh, having something that is hidden it's it, it is based on the principles of shareability how can you place that side by side with the question of privacy that is very important to us in this age yeah that's it's a great question the um um the the internet is is based on um, base is it's founded on the idea that we're going to have a lot of um, good actors, if you will. We we have we always have devious people though, and that's that's what throws the fly into the ointment. Um, so we we have to plan around the things that can go wrong. Uh, I had written an article. Um, a while back on this this idea of fractal governance and fractal governance has uh, it's based on this idea that uh, there are certain uh, areas of emerging technology where we don't have enough uh, experts in the world for every country to have their own troop of experts there um, so privacy is a good example so if as an example we took um, the smartest people on privacy in the world, we put them into this organization 
in all of the countries became members of this organization, then this organization then would set the standards and it would actually create the, um, uh, the rules for the world, if you will. Um, that actually makes good sense to me. I'm sure it actually breaks down in actual practice, but, um, but rather than, than having every country try to come up with their own privacy policy, which just doesn't seem to work, um, having a central organization that creates the standards for the world, that really would make more sense to me. Um, and, and so this is what I recall, would call what fractal governance. And fractal governance can cover, you know, the management of airports around the world. It can cover intellectual property rules for the world. It can cover um, accounting systems, global accounting systems, things, things like that. So we start creating international standards. Now, it, it enables the countries to maintain their own, uh, their own sovereignty, their own um, domain of uh, control, but um, it, it gives them the advantage of having an international group that can help them uh, make the real tough decisions through this time when we have um, real rapidly evolving technology that it's very difficult to keep up with. Um, and so that's challenging for, for even the real smart people. So this is just one idea. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody wants to go that, that direction, but uh, uh, all these things work perfectly in my mind anyway. Okay, that's, that's very interesting to note. Um, so uh, let's go over to the to the next question. I'd like you to talk to us about innovation. Uh, what drives innovation and the very basics of innovation, where the trend is leading us and where we are going with it and the dynamics uh, to it. Because if you look at the, the very nature of our technology today, it is the, the springboard of our technology today and our emerging technologies today uh, is innovation innovation forms a huge part of what we are doing of how our technology has evolved uh, over the years so talk to us about innovation uh, what drives it uh, where the trend is going towards uh, today in the world and in the future and you know, what are the dynamics to it yeah um, a good question so there's a, a certain percentage of our population that uh, their brains are wired in a way that uh, nothing is ever good enough the way it stands today, that they always have to try to improve it. And they're, they're always looking for faster, better, cheaper ways of doing things. And, um, and that's the part of society that always keeps us moving forward. Um, there's, there's a couple kinds of innovation that I like to break it into the disruptive innovation that disrupts existing industries um, and causes companies to have to do more with less. And then there's uh, catalytic innovation, which creates entire new industries. And, and the catalytic innovation, I think, is where it gets real interesting. Now, in, in the past, things um, that would fall into the catalytic innovation category are things like Oh, photography and, and airplanes and, and automobiles and sewing machines and electricity. All of these 
went on to create multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar industries. And, uh, and so then when we look at today, all this emerging technology that we have is going to give us the tools of creation. So we're very likely to create new catalytic industries. And so we're not necessarily destroying existing industries with it. We're creating entire new industries. And, uh, and that's, that I think is, is very positive. There are some of them that are doing both. They're destroying the old and creating the new at the same time. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's, there's this creative destruction stuff that's happening uh, all around us. I think we're going to see this, hap- this play out very quickly over the coming years because digital technology enables things to happen faster. Even though the evolution of physical items takes place at a, small, a slower rate, uh, digital items can actually evolve very quickly and we can go from a, uh, they can scale quickly, go from zero to a, a billion dollar company in just uh, a few months. Um, that's, that I think is quite remarkable. Uh, the physical world is still working at a bit slower pace. So the driverless technology, as an example, is going to take a while to evolve. Uh, flying drones is going to take a while to evolve. But those are physical products. The 3D printing, uh, virtual reality, all of these things, because they involve physical products, they just take a little bit longer to evolve. So it's it's easy to predict things are going to happen really fast, but they, they'll happen slower than we think. <laughs> That's very interesting. Uh, you've talked a lot about, in some of the places, about the uh, three laws of exponential capabilities. So I'd like to understand, talk to us a little bit more about these uh, exponential capabilities, the laws. How do I really apply or fit to what we're talking about, especially in this age of uh, um, digital globalization and especially in this age? How do they really fit in? Yeah, the exponential exponential growth patterns, um, every every industry kind of moves at its own pace. Um, So in the United States, uh, 2018, we finally achieved... 10% 10% of our retail it happens online. So 10% of retail is now e- done through e-commerce. Now that's essentially taken 25 years to reach 10%. Now uh, people in the late 1990s, when the internet was getting started, they were all predicting that uh, we would have the, the death of all these bricks and mortar store all the traditional storefronts would fall apart and we'd be buying everything online. It's actually taken much longer than people ever anticipated. Um, and so the, uh, this, this type of technology takes a while to warm up to, and there's lots of subsystems that have to come into place before it all works efficiently. So as an example, if we're delivering something with drones or we have some automated uh, robotic things that drive up to our house or walk up to our house and drop off packages, we have to have these systems in place. We have to know where it's okay to leave that package, uh, what to do if it's raining out, if there's dogs in the yard, if there's trees in the way, um, if it's real hot and sunny, if the people aren't going to be there at home for the next two or three days, what do we do with the package then? Do we know 
how to handle that. And so how do we keep this merchandise that they purchase safe and, and secure um, until they actually retrieve it? And those systems are not in place yet. If you're living in an apartment complex, where is it okay to leave the package? If you're in an office complex, where is it okay to leave that package? None of these systems are in place yet. And, and so we've got, uh, got a long ways to go to figure out all the details that go along with it. So um, e-commerce is going to continue to grow, but this last mile part, this uh, solving uh, the delivery truck to the, the door front to, to the actual customer, um, that's, that's a tricky problem to solve. So that'll take a, take a few years. Uh, but also, all these problems create opportunities, and I like to think of the positive side of it. So in okay. one of the videos, you itemized them into three. So yeah. I, 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 want to, I want to get, uh, I want to hear, I would like to hear you itemize them into three so that our audience can really understand uh, how uh, you itemize them and why you itemize them in those ways. Okay, okay. Um, see, these exponential growth patterns are happening uh, faster and faster. Um, so it took, um, it took McDonald's 23 years to sell the first billion hamburgers. It took Facebook eight and a half years to reach the first billion customers. It took uh, uh, Uber five, five and a half years to sell the first billion rides. And um, Didi Chuxing out of China it took them a little less than 11 months to solve the first billion rides in China. They're a competitor to Uber. Um, and so um, when we, we look at YouTube as an example, the first person to, to sell, uh, to have over a billion views on their video on YouTube was, was the Korean pop star Psy with his Gangnam Style video. Yeah. And that, that happened in 2012, and it took him uh, 157 days to reach a billion views on, on Facebook. Um, now, since, since that time, there's been well over 100 other stars that have, have exceeded the billion view record, um, with, with Adele doing it in the least amount of time with just 87 days. Um, now, if you're in business today, um, you, you have to keep looking over your shoulder because it's very likely a, a new company can come out of the woodwork and all of a sudden start scaling very quickly and have 10 million, 100 million customers and you didn't know about them because they didn't exist two weeks ago. That's the type of environment we're moving into, which is scary and exciting all at the same time. Um, and I... I I like to uh, uh, to think about exponential technology, like my friend Ray Kurzweil talks about. He says that um, he says on an exponential growth curve, he says when you reach one percent, you're halfway there, um, because it takes a lot of inertia just to get to the one percent mark, and then then it starts going up real rapidly. So I think that's a an interesting. Uh, benchmark, if you will, uh, for how exponential growth curves work. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he talked about that. Uh, <clears throat> At the very early stage of their development, it's very much lineal. 
and then all of a sudden it becomes exponential it becomes accelerated so do you think that the imperceptible nature uh, of of these technologies are at the point where they are linear affects how people really adopt these technology uh, te technologies when they become exponential because when these technologies become exponential in our uh, it, it appears people are caught off guard and uh, they're unaware of the, the the changes this has caused in their society in, in the different sectors of the economy and in their life and so they are caught off guard and so become unprepared uh, to accept these technologies and really put them uh, and, and really apply them into the market uh, or adopt them into the market right right um yeah, great question. We always run the risk of something taking off like a rocket and then just falling apart all at once. So as an example, in China, some of the bike sharing companies have gone bankrupt and they leave literally thousands and thousands of bikes in piles that nobody's using right now. Yeah, because they grew too fast and it wasn't manageable. Um, see, managing a company requires lots of real interesting skills and we're not really teaching people how to manage an exponential growth company. That, that requires a whole different line of thinking, a whole different set of uh, checks and balances and control systems that just don't, uh, don't currently exist. Um, the, the gentleman who started LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, just came out with a book recently called Blitzscaling. And, um, and that's from, more from the investment side of things, but, um, but his theory is that when we see a company that's going to take off, we need to, to overfund it to the point where it has the latitude to make a lot of mistakes along the way and still keep growing. Um, it's, it's too, too easy for investors to get uh, nervous and jerky about an emerging growth company because they're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And so this, these exponential growth curves are um, kind of an emerging science that we just we don't understand completely yet. And the business schools, while they're, they're trying to get their mind wrapped around them, we still don't have all the answers just yet. Okay, great. Uh, let, let's go over to uh, emergent technologies. Um, talk to us about, uh, from your opinion, seven emerging technologies you think will have the, the most profound impact on our world and on us as humans. And you can actually pick any number that you prefer. I had to pick seven because it's significant complexion. Yeah, so what, one of the things I talk about is what I call the disruptive eight. Um, and these are the eight technologies that are reaching out and disrupting over the next couple decades. They'll actually touch the lives of every person on the planet Earth. Um, and so I tend to focus on these, but there's actually more than just eight in the middle of all of this. Um, but I talk about sensor technology and 3D printing and uh, Internet of Things and flying drones and driverless technology, um, uh, blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency and artificial intelligence. And I probably missed a couple along the way there. So 
but all of these um, are in these these growth stages, and they're getting better uh, over time. Some people get frustrated because they're not happening fast enough. Sometimes they're they're happening too fast. Um, 3D printing, as an example, is moving more into the commercial stages. Uh, the flying drones are coming out of the hobbyist era, moving into more commercial applications. Mm -hmm. uh, I just got back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and the drones that they had there are, are tending to get bigger, uh, more industrial grade, more expensive. Um, driverless technology was was everywhere it seems like um, every automotive com company in the world has been investing in driverless technology and wants to have their products somehow used in uh, the driverless uh, world and and I tend to think that driverless is actually driverless technology is the most disruptive technology in all human history um, and I think that it'll be more disruptive than the invention of the wheel itself or electricity or even like the car itself because it will affect more people in a shorter period of time because, because really transportation really affects so many people on planet Earth. And once we take the driver out of the equation, um, everything starts operating differently. Um, that changes the nature of of parking lots, it changes the nature of how we design buildings and how we um, how we plan our lives and whether we own a car or we just summon a car whenever we need it. And uh, do we put parking lots at airports in the future or do we just let people come and go from these driverless vehicles? Do we ever need buses again? Can we just have these vehicles take people to where they want to go? Um, and as, as it gets into the flying realm, do we create these mini airports around cities so that just like a driverless car can take us someplace, a driverless, uh, a flying a drone taxi can take us someplace as well. Um, all of these things are starting to feed on each other and create new opportunities. And um, if you're a, a very ingenious person, this is like the, the magic formula. This, everything's coming together all at once. Um, if you're the average person on the street, it can be very scary because you don't know what to pay attention to. Um, so there's pluses and minuses to the whole thing. It's very interesting uh, that you identified uh, driverless vehicle, driverless technology as uh, the technology that will be the most disruptive going into the future. Because for, for many others, for many people, uh, they actually identify artificial intelligence as the uh, technology or the emergent technology that will be the most disruptive as we go into the future. So talk to, talk to us. Why did you actually, why did you make that choice? Why did you uh, take uh, driverless technology uh, as against artificial intelligence? Uh, what made you uh, make that choice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. I actually think the artificial intelligence is going to take longer, but um, that's that's a whole other discussion. The um, uh, the driverless technology, there is so many massive investments going into it. I mean, they're, they're literally every major car company is investing billions into the driverless side of things. 
Um, and it raises so many interesting questions. Like um, for the past 120 years, the people that have been designing cars have been designing cars around the driving part of it, about the human relationship to the steering wheel on the car. And once the car drives itself, a person who is a car designer has to design the car around the other activities that happen in the car rather than the driving part. And so uh, it begs the question, is this the same job? Uh, is, are they doing something different now? And, and so I find it um, uh, intriguing that um, in the future we're going to have the, the, the jobs of, we're still going to have nurses and doctors and teachers and bankers, but the, the tools they use are going to be vastly different. So then it, it begs the question, is it the same job? Is it the same profession that they're, they're, they're doing? And uh, a lot of people will argue that it isn't. So as we're moving into this, this, this technology, uh, artificial intelligence will help us do lots of things. And it's a necessary component of driverless technology as well. Um, so one of the things that's missing in driverless technology right now is having Wi-Fi everywhere. Because some of the decisions in a car are made on the car itself, and some of the decisions are made in the cloud. Uh, as an example, if, if we're driving through the mountains and the car in front of me hits a deer or hits a goat or something, that information, I need to get that to my car. So that generally has to go up to the cloud and then come back to my car. And, uh, and if there's mountains in the way, if there's shadowing of the signals, then that latency period, that delay time that's involved in getting that information is absolutely critical. We need to shrink that to a fraction of a second. Uh, if it takes 10 seconds, that's way too long. I, I can get in the same accident as the car in front of me. And so having Wi-Fi everywhere is a real important factor in driverless technology. And, uh, and we're not there yet. I mean, there's lots of places in the world that don't have Wi-Fi. And this is really interesting because uh, what I make up from what you, from the explanation you just made is uh, when you talk about artificial intelligence and uh, driverless technology, you find out that you cannot really separate these two uh, from um, um, from each other. It, it appears that a whole lot of these emerging technologies are actually interwoven. They're actually interconnected with each other. You cannot have uh, driverless technology without artificial intelligence. Uh, and so you, you find out that a whole lot of these emerging technologies are actually interconnected with each other. And one cannot actually make a differentiation or a disconnection between most of them in a huge way. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, however, the the artificial intelligence that's used in driverless technology, while it'll be become very good at driving cars, um, it won't be very good at playing chess or help you uh, cook recipes in the kitchen or help you figure out um, solve other types of problems. So these good at. Yeah, it's very good at niche applications. 
Yeah, it's uh, very interesting because you talk about this niche application of uh, artificial intelligence, making them some kind of a, a narrow artificial intelligence systems. Uh, but a whole lot of people talk about when these artificial systems, these artificially intelligent systems become conscious, when they wake up uh, and when they possess an uh, artificial general intelligence, having an intelligence that simulates ours in almost every ramification. Yeah. Um, in the artificial intelligence world, there's something uh, called the incompleteness theory. And, uh, and there are certain, this theory um, contends that there are certain barriers that we can't get across with artificial intelligence, that we can only go so far, um, that we can't make anything that's totally human-like. Now, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. Um, but it, it ends up being kind of that, that, that last mile problem with um, everything, all the other technologies is um, how do we how do we make this so it's um, it's as human-like or better than humans, and so it's useful and making good decisions all the time. Um, so, if I'm teaching, um, uh, see when I, if I have a cleaning robot that's going to clean my house, and uh, I have things in my house, I have place a different value on everything in the house. This, this lamp is more important to me than that table. That couch is more important to me than that chair. And so we have this value system that we place on everything in the room around us. Now, as the, um, the cleaning system is cleaning everything, if it comes across a piece of paper on the floor, how does it make a decision as to whether or not that's a valuable piece of paper or whether it's a piece of trash? Um, we somehow have to to, to train it. Uh, it could be a dollar bill, it could be a birth certificate, it could be something very valuable, or it could just be a piece torn out of a magazine that should be thrown away. Um, and so as we start teaching it all of these things, and how does it know not to spray water on this electrical outlet on the wall, because that'll cause everything to short out. Um, as we start teaching these robots uh, this artificial intelligence, all the things that we find important and not important, we're also teaching it the same biases that we have as humans. And um, somehow we're expecting this artificial intelligence to be smarter, better, more impartial than we are. Um, but very likely we're going to have to contend with a lot of the same um, kind of uh, bias problems that we have that we're building into our robots that <laughs> you know it's very interesting when you talk about these biases that this uh, artificial intelligence systems are getting from us because going into the future uh Kuzer talked about um uh, when these artificial intelligence will uh, some kind of wake up around 2045 or, or so uh it will become a huge problem for us. And he talked about us wanting, having the tendency or needing to augment our, our, our intelligence with this system in order to cope up you know, with, uh, with the, the, the uh, rapidness or the operating power of these artificial uh, super intelligence, uh, in quotes. And someone like Imlamos is doing a great work with uh, 
his Neuralink project, you know, trying to augment human intelligence with artificial intelligence so that we can, we would be able uh, to really uh, uh, work side by side with these artificial systems. So what do you think, what do you think will happen to us at a time or at a point when these artificial intelligence systems become super intelligent and when they become super intelligent, but with our biases, what do you think will be our fate? Yeah, um, but it's a, it's a great question. I mean, we can only theorize as to where this goes in the future, but um, um, but we really have to teach the, these 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 robots this artificial intelligence. Otherwise, it won't know how to do things. And and while um, there are cases where it seems like it's picking up things on its own, it uh, will will still have to have human oversight um, uh, of these systems. Now, now keep in mind, um, all technology breaks down. All co computers will eventually break down and all the robots will eventually break down. Um, and yes, we can create robots that will repair other robots, but as the technology continues to evolve, this robot that repairs other robots is only able to repair the older generation robots. It hasn't been upgraded to repair new, new generation robots. And so we're, we're always going to have to have the human, um, uh, the Sherpas around to help us uh, figure out how to um, make sure that things aren't going totally out of whack and to, um, to keep things in bounds. Um, so, so does it have the potential to really go off the rails and and um, start attacking us? I, I always, I always like to ask the mm. fundamental question of why. Why would it do that? What's its motivations? What's its intentions? I mean, we're not um, um, the the human nature is that we we come with our own uh, desire to live to survive and these survival instincts kick in after a while. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that we're building in survival instincts into robots, um, and, and why, why would we do that? Maybe we would. But um, uh, so this fundamental question of why, why would it do that? Why would it try to take over everything? Um, now, I might be missing some of the, the possibilities here, but uh, I, I think that maybe some of <clears throat> some of the anxiety over this artificial intelligence is, is being overblown and uh, um, and in the in the interim there's extreme uh, good things that can come out of the artificial intelligence it can help us do things it can help us be faster better quicker at the jobs that we're doing today so I, I look at the positive side of the equation just to stay a little bit more on the some of the possibilities that might make uh, uh, that might warrant these artificial intelligence systems to become conscious or want to go take over from us. You talked about the survival instincts, the survivability uh, that it's not built into these machines, and uh, you talked about the question of why. Why would they want to do that? And and since it doesn't have these survival instincts. Uh, why would it develop it in the future, or are we going to develop it in the future? But let's take uh, let's take a little bit more 
on the question of consciousness. Let's bring it down to the question of consciousness because you know that every intelligence system, by its virtue of uh, its intelligence, you know, seeks to preserve itself. And if you take it even further uh, to the question of consciousness, when these systems, these artificial systems, wakes up, as is, as as it is in the case of uh, humans, uh, and becomes conscious. The, the very characteristic, intrinsic characteristic uh, that goes with uh, 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 consciousness, it's the survival instinct, survivability. So if it wakes up, if, if perchance wakes up in the future, becomes conscious, don't you think that the, the, the question of survivability, coming from the perspective that it has become conscious, is, is, a, is a necessary affiliation or a necessary thing that goes hand in hand with its consciousness that it's developed? Um, there's, there's always those possibilities. Now, if, if you think in terms of, um, there, like right now, there's <clears throat> some experiments going on where they'll take the, the brains out of a cockroach or out of a rat or something and try to incorporate it into a mechanical device. And so then you have this um, a cyborg device that comes out of it. Um, so if there's uh, partially organic material, partially mechanical uh, stuff, then it could very likely start taking on the survival characteristics of a more, uh, more human-like person. Um, I, I tend to think that, at least in our lifetime, in our, the near future, that the biggest danger with artificial intelligence is still devious people. Um, people who want to use it to steal money or to hurt somebody or to create leverage or uh, political influence or something. I, I tend to think that that's the biggest danger that we face over the coming next couple decades here. Um, now, things are evolving quickly, and I could be proven wrong on that, so uh, I'm, I'm certainly not the last word, but I think that uh, some of these things get overblown and uh, realistically, I mean, they make great headlines. I mean, it scares the hell out of us. So, uh. <laughs> You founded the Da Vinci Institute, uh, uh, an institute that uh, helps uh, governments, uh, companies and people around the world to understand the patterns and trends of the future, especially with regards to uh, technology and how to leverage on these patterns. If you are asked to give advice to entrepreneurs or business owners and founders on emerging technologies, what most crucial technology would you advise them to take note of going into the future? Um, what's, what's the most crucial technology? Um, yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, I've been predicting that um, in 2030, the largest company on the internet is going to be an education-based company that we haven't heard of yet. Um, and I, I still think that's the biggest opportunity online that nobody's quite cracked the code for. So once somebody figures it out, uh, this technology is going to scale very quickly. It'll scale exponentially. And, uh, and, and suddenly everybody will hear about it. Um, but educating people, um, the, we, we projected out that the average person in 2030 
that enters the workforce will have to reboot their career eight to 10 times throughout their working life, um, which means that we're going to have to uh, kind of retrain ourselves along the way uh, and reskill ourselves very quickly. Now, we don't have good systems for that. Um, and, and companies tend to not want to pay for that. Um, they want the government to pay for it. They want individuals to pay for the retraining. Um, but it's going to come, come down very quickly. And I think this education-based company is going to have to be set up in a way that um, this reskilling, this retraining can happen really fast. Uh, so tonight I need to learn this new skill because I need to apply it to something I'm doing tomorrow. Uh, so, so that type of, of thinking, and by the way, it should only cost me just a small amount of money to do that. And so I can't afford to try to line up time to go back to college for two years to get some sort of degree around uh, this or that. I want something that happens uh, on demand when I need it um, and, and still be exciting and interesting and, and fulfilling all at the same time. So. Uh, I, I think there's a huge opportunity there um, for somebody to, to figure that, that out. So when it comes to the other most crucial things, I think the whole financial world is going to get reinvented here. Um, I think by 2030, over 25% of, of all countries will, will transition their, their national currencies into some sort of a cryptocurrency. It's just much more efficient. Um, and the banking world is going to start to crumble um, around the edges. Uh, they have lots of power and control today. But when I can do all of these transactions on my cell phone, why do I need to deal with a bank? Um, and so that there may still need to be some big banks in the background, but for the most part, uh, this idea of having a, a branch bank on every corner of, of our cities just doesn't make sense anymore. So these are some of the things that I think will will start transitioning quickly. And then uh, the the other one is is the healthcare systems are just um, they're not adapting quick enough. Um, they're they're anti-technology. They're they're way too expensive. We're not getting enough benefit from our healthcare system for what we're paying for, and um, and so we need to leverage the data that is coming off of our bodies uh, on a daily basis. So let me just give you one example here. Uh, if if I somehow invented a digital tattoo that I could put on my arm. And this digital tattoo was in charge of monitoring all the aspects of my blood every day. Uh, it, it managed the characteristics of my blood, the, the blood pressure, the pulses per minute. Everything about my blood was coming off a data stream that was um, my body was emanating on a regular basis. Now, the healthcare industry right now is in the business of selling tests and they sell one test after another after another. Now, if you have that data coming off your, your arm, everything about your blood, most of the tests they do are blood-related. Um, and so we'd already have that information that we could then 
automate into a diagnostic system so then we know all kinds of things that are happening inside of our body instantly just by monitoring the blood um, set up on, on this little digital tattoo here. Um, that's, that's like a game-changing technology that's just waiting to happen. And uh, once that happens, then the whole healthcare industry kind of twists and turns and fi we figure out we still need people taking care of people, but uh, there's so many things we can do faster, better, cheaper than we're doing today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that type of world in the future. Still on the question of uh, the health sector, you're talking about health sector and how slow it's uh, been in adopting some of these uh, technologies. I was looking up on biotechnology, and you find out that biotechnology, uh, this is referred to by many as uh, an emergent technology. But if you looked critically, if you researched more into it, you find out that it actually came on board around 20th century or so. And so since then, there's this slow adoption of the promise of the technology uh, into the healthcare system to use it in solving rapidly most of the problems or the healthcare challenges that's what we are witnessing today. Uh, I'd like to know, what do you think is the cause of our lack of rapid adoption of these emerging technologies, especially when it comes to biotechnology, into the healthcare sector to solve and some of the challenges that we are witnessing today. Is it from the complexity in our biological systems or as a result of phobia? Uh, what's, what's actually the problem? What will you attribute to as the problem uh, that's been preventing us from really adopting this technology uh, into the healthcare sector to solve our greatest challenges? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, from me, from an outsider looking in, it seems like it uh, disrupts the, the internal power structure in that industry. Um, the doctors tend to be the ones making all the decisions. They're very smart people. They've, they've had tons of schooling, tons of training, uh, but they don't understand technology very well. And, um, and so they don't want to be sidelined because some piece of technology is making decisions for them. Now, when we have enough data coming off of our body, uh, we reach a point where there's uh, where it's not possible for any human on the planet to to uh, digest all of that information and make good decisions. And so that's when we need to automate the diagnostics on on these individuals. But um, the doctors don't want to give up the power and control that they currently have, so they make sure they insert all these barriers and blockades to prevent that from happening. Um, eventually, that those break down. Um, the entrepreneurs always figure out a way around it. And, um, and so this is, the healthcare world has become a real magnet for the entrepreneurs because there's so much money there, there's so much opportunity. And uh, eventually, um, it's, it's the, this entrepreneurial swarm that's developing around this industry is, is going to figure out a way in. The McKenzie Global Institute released the report in, I think, 2017, where it cited that by 2030, up to 800 million jobs will be lost to automation. And according to the report, 
in the US alone, 39 to 73 million jobs will be eliminated also by 2030. And according to them, 20% of the displaced workers will be able to transfer to other industries, leaving off the others. Uh, that's the remaining percentage. We, we find it a bit difficult or maybe may not be able to transfer to other industries. And, uh, and I think the same percentage is also applicable to the UK. Uh, talk to us about uh, uh, AI, robotics, uh, automation. The, the role automation is playing in taking away people's jobs and uh, the hope of people of, of really getting themselves back into the system in, in the age of rapid automation because when you look at when you look critically into into this you find out that for someone who is working uh, for someone who is a farmer or a bus driver at the age of 40 and gets displaced from his work from his job by a machine or a robot what are the chances of that person relearning a new skill and becoming a programmer at the age of 40 or 50 what chances does that person actually have? And Yuval Noah Harari talks about uh, a time where, when, when this happens, uh, according to him, this kind of a system will create uh, a class of useless people, people who are really not contributing uh, to the economy and so do not have any military or economic relevance to the, uh, to the system. So what kind of social safety net should be put in place or do you think will come in place to take care of these people or, or, to, or to help them as they go through this process of transitioning from not having a job and maybe probably getting one in the future? Yeah, um, that's, that's a very big question. Um, the, the internet is very sophisticated communications tool and enables us to align the needs of a business with the talent of individuals in far more precise ways than ever before. So rather than uh, hiring somebody full-time, we can bring them on for, for two months or two weeks or two days or even two hours. Um, and, and so the tools that we have to work with to find this precise uh, skill set that we need to apply to this problem today, um, they're getting better and they're, as they're, they're moving along. Now, are we going to be able to, to retrain all the people that um, um, are we still going to have a need for low-skilled workers in the future? And my thinking is, yes, we very much will. Um, there's, there's all kinds of little things that, yes, we could design a robot to do this task, but it only happens um, once every 57 days, and rather than get this $5 million robot that I only use every 57th day, I could just hire a, a person that could handle that problem. Um, that's, uh, that's the type of decision-making that's going to go on. Um, and so the thinking that robots can take over all the different aspects of our lives, that's, that's a long ways down the road. And, um, and I'm, I'm not too, too concerned about that. But the reskilling of people will be challenging. The reskilling of people, if, if somebody that all, the only job they've had all their life is just driving a car and suddenly they, we don't need that many drivers anymore, what other things can they do? Uh, that, 
that's real challenging. So there's gaps in the, the skills, um, kind of the natural uh, talent pool, if you will, that are, are going to come up. And so we'll, we'll have to work our way through. Again, as I, I look over this opportunity landscape, I always say that the, uh, all these problems create opportunities and somebody can figure it out. Um, and the, that, that I think um, uh, it needs to be kind of the lens that we're looking with uh, at the future with because, uh, yeah, if, if all we do is, is just focus on the problems, we'll never see the solutions. So the, the entrepreneurs are out there. They're very ingenious. They have great ideas. And I think we have a, a beautiful future ahead of us. I, I don't believe in utopias. I don't think that'll ever happen. Uh, but I do think that um, we can we can have a marginally better world with a marginally better problem sets that we're dealing with. <laughs> That's very interesting uh, to note, and um, you're very good uh, optimist there. And I hope he, we taking these things into consideration now to make the most out of them. I'd like to go straight to the to the last question. I'd like to squeeze in this last question. Uh, if we look at the world that we are in today, we find out that. Uh, in the past, uh, Europe and uh, America, of course, uh, took advantage, uh, had the advantage to utilize the technology of the 20th century. And because of their ability to actually harness the potentials of the technology of the 20th century, the steam engine, the electricity, and all, of, and, and all whatnot, they were able to colonize Africa. And today, they are ruling the world, they are the world leaders, and they are pretty much taking over almost every aspect of the world. Um, they make good, good good use of it. Africa and uh, some parts of Asia were left behind, and in, in the current world, Asia is taking up, um, uh, is gradually catching up, uh, little by little. You see the exploits of China, but if you look at Africa, it appears that we are still lag lagging behind. At least from my perspective, I live here in Nigeria, and I know what it is. I know the kind of leaders that we have, and the kind of society that we have, and I know. Uh, the, Issues concerning technology and uh, are not really getting enough traction as they are gaining uh, in uh, Europe and in Asia. So I'd like you to talk to you. You are a futurist, you're a renowned futurist, and you study these things, and you give companies advice and, and, and institution advice on issues like this. So I'd like to get your perspective on this uh, issue. From your perspective, from your experience, Looking at the current attitude that we have here in Africa and the current pace at which we are growing and we are developing these technologies, I'd like you to talk to us in frank terms. What do you think will be the fate of Africa in the coming decade or let's say in 2050, going into the future from now? What would be our fate? Yeah, some great questions there. Um, so half of all the babies born in the world today are born in Africa. And um, most of the rest of the world has slowed down. They have very few kids in the rest of the world. So the median age in Africa is around 27 or so. Um, so people are what creates our economy. If we don't have any people, then we have, um, we have no economy. Uh, if you think of um, a world with just one person in it, there's no economy because there's no way they can make any money. If you have a world with two people in it, it's a very limited economy with those two people. But if you have a, a world with uh, 100 people in it, is it 50 times better than those two people? It's actually much greater than that because of all the, the 
the potential trade uh, possibilities. So theoretically, a world with, with 10 billion people in it um, has a greater economy than a world with 7 billion people in it. Um, uh, most of the world has slowed down and uh, uh, hasn't, doesn't have the kids anymore. Um, but the economy is, is really based on human needs. Um, and, and so you have, Africa has that going for it. Um, now the projections are that by 2030, the biggest economy in the world will be, will be China, uh, followed, by, um, followed by India, followed by the United States. Um, really, it's because of all the people. The people really create the economy. Um, now, in 2050, um, Nigeria is supposed to surpass the United States in population uh, at the current rate, um, what, if that continues along what it is today. Um, so you have the potential to have, by 2050, to have a bigger economy than the United States. Um, a lot of it depends on things like infrastructure and systems and uh, um, kind of leadership along the way. Um, and those are, there's a lot of variables in, in all of that. Um, but uh, this infrastructure investment, I think, is going to uh, potentially just take off like a rocket here um, over the coming years. So there's a, there's a whole lot of money that China is dumping into to Africa right now to build up roads and rail systems and dams. And, um, and I think that will that will lay some of the foundation, but the rest of the world, I think, is going to start um, jumping in as well in, in helping make those investments because there's, there's huge opportunities coming out of Africa. And, uh, and I, I, I find it absolutely fascinating that um, uh, it, it tends, Africa tends to get overlooked a lot of times. I really think that that's where the future lies, right in right in the center of Africa, right where you're at right now. And on that optimistic note, I would really like to thank you, Mr. Thomas Fry, for being our guest on the show today. It's really a rare opportunity to really have you and really a place to have you on the show. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I would love to come visit you sometime. Well, that's, that's great. I would really love to have you uh, uh, in my country and uh, we're planning on uh, doing a couple of things and uh, with future discussions and in, i think in the future it would be really great to have you you know come over here to also talk to us some on some of these issues it's uh, it will be great thank you very much for you know gracing the show and uh, look forward to having you subsequently on this show to talk to us more about these issues thank you before we go, let's take a quick break to thank the sponsors of this show. The first goes to Christopher Harley. He is a futurism advocate whose interests include singularity, artificial intelligence, cosmology, mathematics, quantum mechanics, robotics, and philosophy. He sees the universe as a collection of nested fractal levels with the emergent behavior of levels driving its development. Of 
Fortune Systems Architect by day, he is also the Vice President of the Lifeboat Foundation, a non-profit, non-governmental organization dedicated to encouraging scientific advancements while helping humanity survive existential risks and the possible misuse of increasingly powerful technologies. He helped fund Sidekick.ai, which is building the technology to create an AI version of yourself that outsources your daily decision making. Christopher Harley is also the CEO and co-founder of TAFFDS.org. It's an international journal which publishes uh, journals that are well researched. Uh, it also invites people to write uh, researched and innovative articles, both empirical and opinions from every discipline on contemporary global topics, including futurism or futurology, theorism or theology, transhumanism, science, engineering, communication, education, environmental science, and political science. And TAFFDS.org simply stands for Transdisciplinary Agora for Future Discussion. Of course, Christopher Harley can be found at nesteduniverse.com and on Twitter at nesteduniverse. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Future Discussions Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you subscribe on your Apple or Google podcast or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review of the show as that helps me in improving the quality of the content. For updates on fresh episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Future Discuss. You can also like our Facebook page at Future Discussions Podcast. I am Augustus Chukwu. Thank you for listening.